following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, please visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. We're in a series called Becoming, which by the way, if, uh, if you missed last week's message called Becoming Very Great, you missed a very great message. It really was, and you can go on to our uh, website anytime, clcaustin.com. You can also log on to our podcast, just search for Christian Life Austin and download any sermons that you have here at Christian Life. But tonight I'm going to tell you my topic up front. We're becoming godly in an ungodly world. Becoming godly in an ungodly world. And to help us, we're going to look at the book of Daniel, which Pastor kind of teased a little bit in week one of the series. If you know anything about Daniel, it's a story book. There's a lot of stories in there. There is um, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There's Daniel in the lions. And all these stories, which we all learned from, let's be honest, Veggie Tales. That's how we know them, right? <laughs> oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where, 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 oh, where? Yes, very good. Where would we be without that little tomato and cucumber? We would not know the Bible, would we? Daniel, Daniel lived during a time when the whole nation of Israel rejected God and thus paid the price for it. And by the way, anytime people reject God as king, and pretty much every people group in history has at some point, they pay the consequence for that rejection. If you don't follow God, you're going to pay a price. And the prophecy for these people was if you don't follow God, you're going to be taken off as slaves. And the Bible uses this word exiled. What that means is the Babylonians and and the nation of Babylon is where modern day Iraq is. If you're curious where that is geographically, but the Babylonians came in. Actually, let's just read it together. This is Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one. It'll be on the screen. It says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. Now remember that name, Ashpenaz. We're going to come back to him in a minute. Chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So let me break that down. Nebuchadnezzar I was king of Babylon. He was incredibly wise. In fact, Saddam Hussein, who's from that same area, uh, liked Nebuchadnezzar so much, he actually modeled a lot of his leadership after Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be the next Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decided to conquer Israel in 605 B.C. Um, And instead of attacking the city of Jerusalem, specifically the city of Jerusalem, he decided to besiege it, which means that he's going to take his army and surround the city. So nothing comes in, nothing goes out, and... It forced the Israelites to surrender. He told his chief officials, don't kill people. Instead, I want you to arrest the best people. The royal family, the brightest, the prettiest, the most educated. Bring them back to Babylon, import them to me, and we'll put them in a training program. What we will do is we'll slowly strip away their culture and replace it with Babylonian culture So we'll make them think like us and act like us and be like us. And thus, we'll make us stronger as a result. Does that make sense? So we're going to take these Israelites, the best. I want the best, the brightest, the most educated, the royal family. And and we're going to just slowly strip away 
their culture, replace it with Babylonian culture, and it makes the Babylonians stronger as a result. That's the plan. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar raids Jerusalem, loots Solomon's temple, gets everything valuable, including the most valuable people, and brings them all back to Babylon. Look at verse 4. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome. I know that's reminding you of me now, but let's focus. (laughs) Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, some of these guys had to be thinking, hey, praise God. Like, we thought we were going to be killed. We're not killed. We're actually going to live, and we're going to live really, really well. Basically, we have an all-expenses-paid graduate program with the food allowance straight from the king's table. Sounded like a pretty good deal. Here's the problem with that, though. The food broke every Jewish dietary restriction because this food was used in idol worship before it was served to them. So in their mind, it was dirty food. It was considered dirty to them. It says they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And now we see the indoctrination, the effect of culture into a generation. Now, I want to stop here, and I want to just say that if we don't understand the time in which we live... If we don't understand God's word, if, if we don't understand the book of Daniel and how it is a playbook and how to live in our generation, if we don't understand these things, then our culture will have the same effect as their culture had on them and we might not even know that it's happening. The culture has an agenda. The culture has an agenda. And I'm talking about the devil. The devil uses culture to shape us. And now you say, well, well what does he do? Let me show you. Look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Culture has an agenda. And the first item on the agenda is to change your identity. Change your identity. Slap a label on you. Make you believe something about yourself that is not true. Anybody know what this is? A label maker, good, one person, thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of old technology. We don't use these a whole lot anymore, but you can actually just type things in here um, and and print them out, and and you can label things if you're obsessive uh, (laughs) or detail-oriented. I'm printing out my name here so that I can wear my name. Um, But you you, you might not be obsessive. You might not be real detail-oriented. I promise you're related to somebody who is. Uh, In my family... That is my middle sister, Julie. There we go, in case you forget who I am. Uh, That's my middle sister, Julie. She is uh, very organized, which is really helpful sometimes, but sometimes it's not. We we go uh, to her house a lot of times for Christmas or Thanksgiving, and she has her dining room table, and she has uh, labels on where everyone is supposed to sit at the dining room table. I'm a 38-year-old man. I'm going to pick my own seat, thank you very much. So just to be nefarious, I'll come in, I'll just switch all the nameplates, and she'll come in and she goes, that's not where you're supposed to sit. That's what the label said. I just sit where the label label was. She loves to label things. Now let me ask you something. Who has the right to label something? Who has the right to label something? I'm just talking about something. Here's who has the right to label something. There's three categories of people. The first is the manufacturer. 
All right, the manufacturer has the right to label something. How many of you have a label on your shirt, either on the inside of the shirt or the front of the shirt? It makes sense, right? They made the shirt. They can label the shirt with their label. So the first is the manufacturer. The second category of people is the owner. Think about this. If I, if I came to your house with my label maker and I just started walking around, I just started, just started labeling stuff. Television, you know, dog, <laughs> underwear drawer, right? That's weird. Now, even though I might be right, I might have the labels right, I don't have the right because I'm not the owner. Only the owner, owner is able to label, right? So we have the manufacturer, we have the owner, and the third group of people is the purchaser. The purchaser. Growing up, you get a new backpack for school. What does your mom say to do? Put your name in it, right? You get a new baseball glove. They all look the same. Put your name on it, right? So if you buy something, if you purchase something, you have the right to label it. Now I want to ask you a question. It might be the most important question that you answer tonight. Who... Or what labels you? Who or what labels you? You want the answer? The one who made you, owns you, and purchased you. That's who gets the right. The one who made you, owns you, and purchased you. Let me talk about that last one just for a moment. The scriptures teach us that when Christ came into this world to die for our sins, he paid for our sins. Last, last Wednesday night, um, my son and I, Zach, we, we, uh, we usually go grab something quick. It's just easy on Wednesdays. Wednesdays are really long for all of us. Thank you for being here, especially if you worked all day. We're just honored that you would choose Jesus tonight. It'd be much easier to go home. But you said, you know what, this is a, this is a priority for me. So we're thankful for you. But we do the same thing. We just grab something quick, typically on the way home. And last Wednesday, he goes, I don't want fast food, which is code for, I just want to stay up later. That's what he was really doing. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, where do you want to go? And so we settled on Jim's uh, out in Circle C, I'm not Circle C, in uh, Oak Hill. So we go to Jim's, and we realize quickly that it's, it's all Christian life Austin. Like, we apparently take over that restaurant on Wednesday night. <laughs> You want, like, extra service, just come to Jim's. We're going to be there. Um, so we walk in. There was a whole lot of people, some really good friends of ours, and uh, they asked us to sit with them, which was super kind. They didn't have to do that. And so we came in, and we sat with some friends from the church, and we had a good visit, and, and it was great. And so it came time at the end of the dinner, and, uh, and everybody was getting their bills. And I was talking, and, and I noticed that several had bills, but I didn't have my bill yet, and so I was, maybe she's bringing it. I just... And so I just kept talking. And, th- and then I'm noticing the waitress isn't even coming to our table anymore. And so I'm like, okay. And everybody's kind of getting their stuff, getting ready to go. And I'm like, I don't have a bill yet. And so I'm kind of picking up. And I said, was somebody a bad boy and, and picked up my bill? And uh, Sweet John and Peggy McDaniel, thank you so much again. They, uh, I said, I'm out of. And uh, that's not the first time they've done that with me. And I just appreciate you so much. Um, and I told them, I, here, here's the thing. When that happens... And he's not going to buy your dinner tonight, okay? So don't think that's going to happen when you go to gyms. Um, When that happens, you have two responses. I could have said, that's uncalled for. I ordered the food. I ate the food. I'm going to pay for the food. He's going to get, it's it's already paid for. I'm going to pay for it again, right? Now that's silly. That's silly. There's another response though, where I just say, wow, thank you. And what a blessing. Thank you. Appreciate that so much. 
And on Sunday, I said the same thing. Wow, thank you. That was such a huge blessing for you to buy our meal. Uh, later tonight, I'm going to Chewy's. And so... No? See there. <laughs> In the same way, Jesus, right... He paid the bill. Scripture says that all of us sin. Everybody in the room sins and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, the penalty, the payment, the bill that's due is death. That's the bill. Uh, Ephesians 2, 3 says it a little bit differently. It says all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We were living not by the spirit, but by the flesh. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. We deserve wrath. We deserve death. That's the bill for the sin that you and I do. But God did not give us what our sins deserve. He gave his son Jesus what our sins deserve instead. And so Jesus paid that price. Jesus died that death. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become our sin so that in him, in a relationship with him, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he paid the bill so that we don't have to. Isn't that awesome? And if we put our faith in him, yes. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, your Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Now, he paid the bill. And you can have one of two responses. You can say, that's my sin. I did the sin. I thought the thought. I said the thing. I did the action. I'm going to pay for my sin. And unfortunately, too many people do that. And they pay the wrath and and the death penalty that was already, the bill's already been canceled. Instead of just saying, wow, thank you. I appreciate that. You gave your life for me, and now I willingly give my life to you. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 19 and 20 says, Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were purchased. He purchased you with his blood on the cross. So he's the one that has the authority to label you. He's the only one who can tell you who you are. Your identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. But the culture is going to try to shift that and put another label on you. Don't allow that to happen. Culture is trying to change it. Find your identity in Christ. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. And Daniel did. Now watch what happens in verse 8. Daniel says, I'm not going to eat the food. It it violates my kosher dietary laws, and it also is food that was used in idol worship. I'm not eating it, but look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved. I love that word, by the way. I love that word, resolved. I just get the picture of of, of his feet in wet concrete and letting that cement around his ankles, and he goes, I'm I'm not eating it. Like, I'm resolving. I'm not doing it. I'm resolute. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And then he asked the chief official, that's Ashpenaz, for permission not to defile himself in that way. And I love that he asked for permission, by the way. He didn't say, you Babylonians, you're a bunch of heathens, y'all are going to hell. And he didn't do that. He said, I have a standard and I don't want to eat the food. I'm going to ask if I can refrain from eating the food. But culture doesn't want you to do that. Culture has an agenda for your life. And the second item on the culture's agendas, they want you to compromise your standards. They want you to compromise your standards. Here's what I've learned in 38 years of life. Is that if you compromise, 
If you compromise, it doesn't erase the tension that you're feeling. It only weakens your resolve. Right? He was resolved. I'm not doing this. But if you compromise, it doesn't weaken the tension. It just weakens your resolve. The concrete loosens a little bit, right? And that's a problem. Like, like if, if, if I do the thing, if I sin this time, it's a little easier to sin the next time. If I cheat once, it's a little easier to cheat again. If I cross a line financially, if I cross a line sexually, if I cross a line with recreational drugs, fill in the blank. If I cross the line, it's a little easier to cross the next line or at least cross that same line again and again and again. It doesn't weaken the tension. It only weakens your resolve. And a lot of you have felt that tension. Here's the thing. I believe Christians are in a dilemma because you're not a bad person. You want to serve God, but you're feeling this tension to compromise. There's so much pressure on you that the culture puts on you. And I get it. It's from the culture. And you know what we end up doing? We end up moving the plumb line of God's word down to a level of moral relativity where suddenly it's not his standard and God's way and holiness and righteousness and all these things that we're pursuing, but it's like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And we look at somebody else and then it makes us feel better about ourselves and then we just end up celebrating and worshiping versions of us. And there's, there's, a, there's a plumb line that's much higher. God says, this is the standard that I want for you. And culture's pushing you and when you compromise that, it doesn't weaken the tension, it just weakens your resolve. Can I make something very clear? God's word is for you. It's for you. God wasn't sitting in heaven going, how can I make this real tough? Right? He wasn't, he wasn't I want to make religion hard. No. God's word is not for him. It's for your good. It's for my good. It is. And therefore, when culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. What's so cool is that Daniel made up his mind before he knew how the story of Daniel would end. Isn't that cool? Like he made up his mind. He resolved before he wrote or read the book of Daniel. Like he had no idea. That, that could have been signing his death sentence. I don't want to eat the king's food. And he could have been from Ashpenaz saying, well, you're going to die. Like he doesn't know. He has no idea how he's going to be received in that moment. He resolved before he knew the result. Let me say that again. He resolved before he knew the result. And we've got to do the same thing. We have to be firm in our convictions. Hold firm to the truth of God's word. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is where it gets really good. Now, God. Say that with me. Now, God. There's something, or should I say someone, that a lot of times we forget to factor in. Now, God. God says, I'm going to use Daniel's decision to draw a line in the sand to direct the rest of his days. Isn't that cool? God says, I'm, I'm going to use this line that Daniel's drawing in the sand. I'm going to direct the rest of your days. Now, God, there's a now God moment for you. You say, I'm resolving. I'm not doing that. I'm not making that compromise. I'm not changing my identity. And now God says, I'm going to use that to change the rest of your future. Now God has caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned you food and drink. So Ashpenite likes Daniel, but he's also fearful of Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, I don't know what's going to happen if I just allow you to not eat the food. He said, why should he, Nebuchadnezzar, see you looking worse than the other men, young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now look what Daniel asked to be done for him and his friends. Verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants ten days Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
And by the way, this would be the first test of many tests that would come in Daniel. If there's one thing that's unique about the book of Daniel, is how many times, many, many times that Daniel and his friend's faith were tested. Look at verse 13. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So Ashpenaz agreed to this and tested them for ten, uh, ten days. Now, I don't have the rest of the scripture on the screen. I just want to read it to you. Is that okay? So he says, test us. Ashpenaz says, okay, 10 days. Let's see what happens. At the end of the 10 days, these four men looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So he resolved. He said, I'm not going to change my identity. I'm not going to compromise my standards. And God says, well, I'm going to bless you in your resolution. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none, none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Come on, somebody. You resolve. And there's a now God moment waiting for you where God says, I'm going to do something incredible in your life. And give you awesome favor. Daniel didn't change who he was. He didn't compromise his standards and God blessed him as a result. Here's the problem. Christians are in a dilemma. Because like Daniel, we want to influence the culture. But we don't want to be influenced by the culture. And and this becomes very difficult. Because how do you navigate that pendulum from swinging too far in either direction? I want to influence the culture, but I don't want to be influenced by the culture. And I really see two extremes when it comes to this. You have some people that would just be like, this is the word of God. And this is what the Bible says. And we're going to adhere to this. And you're right. And, and, and those people can be um, dogmatic. And, and this is the way it is. And they can almost come across as brash or harsh, abrasive. And a lot of times I see this on Facebook. I'm not knocking you. You'll notice I don't comment a whole lot on Facebook. It's not that I don't like Facebook. It's just I don't want to get into that. And, and I see this a lot where this is the word of God and you're right. But God never called us to be right. He called us to be effective. And I, I just feel like that if we're, if we're just, this is it, right? And, and if we're not helpful, then we're not right. We're actually wrong. And then I see the other extreme where you have people in the name of love set aside God's word and say, well, we just want to love people. We want to show them grace and we want to show them love and everyone's welcome. Everyone's accepted and doesn't matter what you do. And that's not great either. And, and a lot of times, you know, his grace is sufficient. His mercy's new every morning and it, it's okay. And a lot of times you might have friends or coworkers or family members who are locked up in some sin. You're like, hey, it's okay. God, God loves everybody. And we just kind of forget about this in the name of love. And we think that we can love them better than God loves them. And so we've got this pendulum, and you can't let it swing too far in either directions. Daniel had this unbelievable ability to stay firm in his faith and influence the culture at the same time. You know who else did? Jesus. Jesus was pretty good at this. That's why he was total perfection, total righteousness wrapped in skin. That's why Jesus, he was perfectly holy with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors and sinners who were coming to him Think, the scriptures say that the sinners ran to him, 
Think about that. This is the law, right? I came to fulfill the law. He, he's, he is God in the flesh. And people were running, sinners were running to him. You would think the opposite. If there's, right, if, if in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, this is the word walking around. You would think sinners would go, ah, scatter, right? But it says they drew near to him. There was something about him. He influenced the culture, but he didn't lose who he was. He never compromised who he was and, and what he believed, yet they felt loved by him at the same time. There's a verse that really sums that up. It's John 1, 14. It says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've got to find a way to have grace, yes, but also we have to have truth. We can't let the pendulum swing too far in either direction. Both grace and truth. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. Truth is God's word. What is grace? Grace is the free, unmerited love and forgiveness from God. And I think we have a hard time as Christians striking that balance. Without truth, without the Bible, we're corrupt, right? If we don't have truth, we're just a bunch of corrupt, worldly, carnal people, uh, and God's word allows us to be changed. I thank God for God's word. But if we don't have grace, we need grace. Without grace, we're condemned because you can't do enough good things. You can't even adhere to the whole law and get saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. You hold the whole Bible. You do everything in the law. And it's not by works so no one can boast. You're saved by grace and grace alone. So you have to have truth and you have to have grace. Without truth, we become worldly. Without grace, we become judgmental. Listen to this. You can write this down. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. But if you put them together, truth and grace are medicine. Let me say that one more time. Truth without grace, it's mean. And grace without truth is meaningless. But if you put them together... Truth and grace are medicine. It will heal you. Christian life often, I want, this, I want this to be the way we are as believers, that we live this way, but I also want to offer that to you tonight. There's somebody here that needs some grace in their life and some truth in their life. Grace invites us to be free. He says, I know what you did, but you're still welcome here. Our, our church motto, our slogan, you hear it all the time, is Christian life often exists to love you where you are, grace and to move you where God wants you to be, truth. I want to love you where you are, but we're going to love you. And so I don't care what you did last night. I, you probably sinned on the way here, right? Yelling at your spouse. <laughs> I don't want payway again, right? You're just mad. <laughs> we're going to love you where you are. We're going to hug you at the door, but we're going to love you enough not to leave you where you are. We're going to move you where God wants you to be. There's a truth to the grace component as well. You have to have grace and truth. So I want to close with a beautiful story. One of the best stories in the Bible to illustrate this is found in John chapter 8. Randy, if you'll come help me. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Which is funny to me. She's caught... In the act of adultery. What were they doing there? <laughs> like, 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 
why, why, why were you there? How did you catch her? What was your role? We're pretty good at seeing everybody else's sin, but pretty hard seeing our own sometimes, right? They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What are you going to say about the world? What are you going to say when the Supreme Court rules? What are you going to say about fill in the blank? That's what they're asking him. What do you say? They were trying to trap him and into saying something that could, they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They're trying to give him an either or to, tr- to trap him, to trick him. Right? Is, is it truth and we kill her? Or is it grace and you abandon the Bible? Pick one. When he was writing in the dirt, we don't know what he was writing. He might have just been giving them time to think about their lives and their sin without flat embarrassing them. He could have just said, come on, Pharisee. I know what you did last night. I know what you're thinking right now. You're going to hell. I mean, he didn't do that. He could have said that, could have thought that, could have wrote that. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And some scholars believe that they left in this order because um, the ones that had lived the longest had sinned the most. And so they just started dropping the rocks going, oh, I'm out, I'm out. And again, we don't know what he was writing in there. He could have been writing the names of mistresses in the dirt. And as they saw the name, like, oh, yeah, I did that one. Yep, yep, right. So it's like, that was, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. That just came out wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just fun to think of. I don't know what he wrote. But then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? You've got to catch this. Let me stop right there and say, when Jesus confronts you with your sin, he does it in the most polite, non-threatening, loving, not humiliating, personal kind of way. Okay? He says, didn't even one of them condemn you? Just one, any of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus, Jesus says, neither do I. Grace. Go and sin no more. Truth. He says to you, and he says to me tonight, I know what you did last night, but you're still welcome here. I love you where you are, but I love you enough not to leave you where you are. I want to move you where I want you to be. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got a calling for your life. And so I want you to go and sin no more. I want you to leave your life of sin and follow me because I've got an abundant, fuller, amazing and then eternal life that I want to give to you I don't condemn you but we got to move forward let me work in your life to help you leave your life of sin I'm calling you to hold high God's truth we're not changing God's word for our culture let me say that again we are not changing God's word for our culture we will not 
change God's word for our culture, but we are at the same time going to be freely giving God's grace to a world that needs it. That's how you become godly in an ungodly world. We've got to balance that. We've got to balance that. Here's what I'd love to do. I want to offer some grace tonight because that's what Jesus has given me. And I don't want to be a recipient of that. I want to be a distributor of that tonight. There may be somebody in the room who says, that's me. I came in. I got a lot of issues. That's okay. We all, we all do. He wants to lead you, you to leave your life of sin. We love you where you are. But we also want to move you where God wants you to be. But you've got to take the first step. We'll help you. We'll give you, we'll give you some application on how to do that. But you've got to take the first step and say, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. So here's what I'm going to do. It's a little late typical, but I'm, I'm going to ask every head to bow and every eye to close, okay? Because I don't want this to be about anybody but you and Jesus. And what I would love in this moment is, is for you to respond. If God is calling you to a life with him. Again, he paid the bill. The debt is canceled. You don't owe any more for that. You can either receive that free gift of God or you can pay for your own sins. It's truly up to you, but there's no reason to pay when it's already been paid. And so you just say, wow, thank you. I love you. I receive that forgiveness from you tonight because you gave your life for me. I freely give my life to you. I want you to be my Savior and I want you to be my Lord. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I want you to lead my life going forward. And I believe in my heart that God, you came to earth. You were robed in flesh. Jesus, you died on a cross and you rose from the grave, beating death, beating hell, giving me the power and authority to do the same thing by putting my hope and faith and trust in you tonight. I want to give you that opportunity to receive the free gift of grace from Jesus tonight. And if that's you and you say, Reed, I've never done that. I've never done that. But tonight I want to do that. I want to take that first step. I want to move where God wants me to be. I know I need him in my life. Again, this is not rededication. I'm thankful if you're rededicating your life. That's awesome. That's, that's a great thing too. I'm talking about the person in the room that says, Reed, I need Jesus for the very first time tonight. I've never made this, this step of faith and I want to do it tonight. If that's you, I'm going to ask you on the count of three in just a moment to just slip up your hand. No one's looking around. It's between you and God. I'm going to, get, I'm going to pray for you. and just get, I'm going to pray for boldness for you in this moment because I know that your heart's beating fast. And you say, I don't know if I can raise my hand, but I, I want you to take that first step and say, Jesus, I choose you. Lord, I ask that whoever in this room that you're speaking to in this moment about this specific decision, God, if you're calling them, that they would just respond with, yes, Lord that you would give them a boldness and a courage to shoot their hand up on the count of three in just a moment to say yes to you and no to their life of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna count. I want you to shoot your hand up again. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed, just between you and Jesus. I wanna, I wanna look so I can see who I'm praying for. One, two, three. That's awesome. hands all over this room. 
Put your hands down. If, if that was you, we're going to all pray a prayer together. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe that in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to pray together. If you prayed this before, let's pray it again. I think, I think Jesus likes to hear this uh, from us anytime we're willing to pray it. So let's pray together. Again, let's confess this with our mouths, especially those of you that raised their hands tonight. Just say something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you came to earth to die for my sins. For my mistakes. You died on the cross. You were buried. And you rose again. And you give me the power to beat death one day. To beat hell one day. Because you paid the price that was meant for me. Come into my life. Start me over with you leading me and then just right now just in your own way just tell him how much you love him just worship him right where you're at thank him for the gift of mercy and forgiveness he says I don't condemn you Romans 8 1 there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus if you just prayed that prayer even for the first time guess what there's no condemnation on you he forgives you all your sins past present and future For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. You're saved. That's awesome. Now for the rest of you, for the rest of you, there's there's two groups of people that are left. One group of people says, I'm just not ready to make that decision yet. And that's okay. I'm glad you're here. I want you to keep coming. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that if we'll seek the Lord, if we'll seek Him with all of our heart, we'll find Him. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart, just keep seeking him. I promise he's not elusive. He's not playing hide and seek. The Lord wants to have an encounter with you and you'll find him. I promise you'll find him. You just keep coming. You keep seeking and you'll discover that what I just preached tonight is 100% truth. And there'll be a day very soon that you're saying, I'm in. Okay, I'm in. Should have done it back then. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, we've got to find a way to influence our culture without being influenced by the culture. I think Jesus and Daniel modeled that really well. We've got to have grace, okay? Let's cut back on some of them social media posts. I don't do it because look, look at the feed. Look at the comments. It's just negative, negative, negative. It's just people fighting you. We're not building bridges. We're tearing them down. What I'd rather do is I'd rather see somebody who makes a comment on somebody else's post, invite them to lunch and say, hey man, I just want to tell you how much I love you. More importantly, how much God loves you. And have some grace in that moment. But let's not abandon God's truth. We've got to have truth too. I don't condemn you. Let's leave our life of sin and go and sin no more. We've got to have grace and truth. Let's stand together.